Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Ruth. In the Old Testament, we are returning to our study of this this short book, but a story that is packed with seeing God's grace, seeing God's working, the, the theme really of His loving kindness and redemption, and understanding the, the way that the Lord is working here. We have been looking at this, this book. You can read it in less than 15 minutes, but we are taking several weeks to, to go through it. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 186 as we come to the third chapter of, of the book of Ruth. You know, much thought often goes into marriage proposals. There is a wealth of information. There's a lot of ideas. Uh, those of us that have proposed tend to think about that. It's a, there's that concern, the panic. Will she say yes? What's going to happen? Uh, for those that are wondering, the repository of all knowledge, the Internet, provides gr- wonderful guidance. Uh, There's an instructional website called WikiHow that offers several suggestions for making proposals. Number one is make sure your girlfriend wants to get married. You know, that's a pretty good starting point. Talk to her parents. Buy the ring in advance. Pick a date to ask. Pick a location. Personalize your engagement. And then practice what you will say. It's interesting because the same website also has an article that was trending the other day on how to make up for a bad marriage proposal. So I'm not sure if that's the place you want to go for advice when their, their trending article is what to, do, what to do when it goes wrong. When I looked at that article, I realized, well, if, if the people had followed the first advice, a lot of these things wouldn't apply. They wouldn't have messed up. But I doubt that there's any website that talks about and gives the idea of the startling marriage proposal that we find in Ruth chapter 3. It really is a proposal that is shocking. And I want us to consider this this morning because we find a a change in the story as it's it's moving forward. If if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to begin reading back in chapter 2 to kind of give us the, the context as we come into this. And we'll read several verses further than the text that we're going to consider this morning, but, but it allows us to see what is taking place in this passage. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me. I'm going to begin in, in chapter 2 at verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he also said to me, you shall stay close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest. 
and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor and do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. And he turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your garment, take your maidservant under your wing, and for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that he, if he will perform the duty of a close relative to you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and the practical teaching, the examples that we find. We, we pray that we would understand your faithful provision and that we truly can find security, rest, and comfort in you as we trust you. Work in our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. In this story, we are seeing God's providential working. What we are going to see is that God faithfully provides security for those who will trust in him. And we find that in this passage, that God is working in the ordinary events of of the lives of these individuals. And at the same time, he's weaving their lives with his purpose. I mentioned several weeks ago, in some ways, we almost need to read the story backwards. We see what happens at the end and find how God is bringing these events together. And understanding that while we see God working here, God is still at work in our lives today. In the ordinary events... God's loving kindness overcomes human tragedy. Chapter 1 of Ruth really opens with with tragedy. There's a famine that drives Elimelech and his family from the the land of promise to the land of Moab. From From the house of bread, Bethlehem, into a pagan land. And and their plan is only to be there for a short time, but it doesn't go as planned. Elimelech dies. His sons end up marrying Moabite women, and then both the sons die, and finally Naomi comes home. 
And and chapter 1 ends with this glimmer of hope. The the clouds begin to fade, but there's been been a famine and three funerals. And then in chapter 2, we find out about God's provision. There's a harvest. The the Lord has blessed Israel. And and when you read in Judges, the pattern was that, that Israel would stray from the Lord, God would bring judgment, they would repent, God would bring blessing. So we're back at that point of blessing. And, and we find that, that Ruth just happens to go to the field of Boaz. And Boaz just happens to come and notice her. And we're finding all of these seeming hap events that are the working of God, bringing them together. And chapter 2 really ends with the, if you've never heard the story, almost wondering what's going to happen. Are Ruth and Boaz ever going to see each other again? Harvest is done. The wheat harvest, the barley harvest. And chapter 3 now becomes rather confusing. We read this and say, what in the world is going on here? You know, uncovering his feet, laying down, and, 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 and he's going to, what, what is taking place It's a confusing passage because of the divide between our 21st century American culture and what was taking place in Israel 3,000 years ago during the time of the judges. And there's so much in this passage we don't really understand because of the cultural confusion and and trying to understand what's taking place. And and sadly, unfortunately, it's, it's easy for some to read this section in a less than favorable light due to our culture and the proclivities of of our society. There is nothing improper that is taking place here. There is no indecency in this passage. Now, on the other hand, what we read here is not acceptable dating policy for International Baptist College and Seminary. (laughs) So for our students, understand that whatever the section meant for their culture, it doesn't apply in our culture. So don't try sneaking into the guy's dorm and laying down at the foot of his bunk, uncovering his feet, and then claiming it worked for Ruth. (laughs) You will most likely get a one-way trip back to the land of Moab, (laughs) wherever that may be for you. It's one of the challenges we have with with narrative passages of Scripture. But as somebody has said, narratives are not normative. That is, they do not create the standard. They tell us what God was doing or what took place, what people were doing. Narratives describe situations, but they don't prescribe the standards. And so we have to look at it and see what are the principles, what are the teaching, and what is the culture of that time. To understand this passage, it's really helpful to understand a couple of terms that are involved in this situation and that would have been very prominent in Israel. And I want to give you a couple of key terms that will help before we get into the outline this morning. The, the first one is the, the Leverite marriage. The, the word comes, the lever comes from the Latin, which means husband's brother. And you can read about it in Deuteronomy. It was the practice of a man marrying his brother's widow if there were no children to perpetuate the family name. And it would also then provide a legal heir for the property. And so in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, there are instructions given to the brother of a deceased brother to care for that widow and propagate his lineage. 
Now, practically speaking, that was a, a, a way of protecting women in that day. That, that w- without the social nets and social security and other policies to help, that there was a protection. And now, while the, the practice may seem strange in our culture, I think one of the points of application that we, we tend to miss and is important for us is the realization that marriage impacts more than just the couple. In, in the Liverite marriage, it impacted the family. And understanding marriage today impacts families and impacts society. And so when marriage breaks down, society breaks down. And we're seeing that in our nation today. Because marriage was invented by God. It was His idea. It was the first institution established. And there's a reason that there's actually a public aspect to marriages. We, we speak of gathering in the sight of witnesses. There is a legal document. And, and there's a governmental involvement because marriage is good for society. The way that God has ordained it. And I believe that's also part of why Satan attacks marriages so much today. It's good for other people to know who belongs to whom. And that's what marriage does. It's not simply about two people who love each other. Because that can create a lot of problems. And that's, that's our American culture, which has its own set of problems. Well, what if somebody falls in love with the wrong person? You know, what if a Christian falls in love with a non-Christian? Well, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And whatever that means, Genesis 2.24 that says a man shall be joined to his wife, that's a yoke. And and while there are wonderful non-Christian spouses, there's never going to be a true spiritual oneness if both don't know the Lord. And and so understanding the importance of that and, and realizing God's grace is sufficient even when we fail. But there has to be spiritual life to have spiritual oneness. And that's part of marriage for believers. What if somebody falls in love with somebody who's already married? And in our culture, sometimes that's acceptable. What if somebody falls in love with someone of the same gender? Well, God ordains marriage. And to culturally define love as nothing more than the the emotion or a feelings is is really to miss the biblical understanding. The love that we see displayed in this passage is not going to fit our culture. And I'm not just talking about the liverite marriage and, and what this means, but understanding the commitment for the concern for what's best for the other. I saw a recent post in a a local social media group that I'm part of that said, quote, don't let your husband get in the way of finding your true love. That is not a biblical focus. That is our culture that's only focused on self. And God's not even in the picture. So I I say this because the Liverite marriage illustrated that marriage wasn't just about the couple. It was about the community. It was about the family. And it was really about advancing what God had laid out, that God had provided the property to Israel, the promised land that was promised to Abraham and then divided by their their tribes. That land was to stay in those tribes. And this was one of the ways of protecting that. I think practically what we see is strong marriages make for strong churches, which make for a strong society. 
And so that's why we have to guard that. And understand that marriage also informs us of Christ's relationship with the church. Because as a church, as believers, we are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. And that is the mystery that Ephesians reveals to us, that part of God's reason for marriage was to show that relationship. That Christ gave himself up for us to lead us. So understanding this term is important. A second one is the the term of kinsman redeemer. And that's what's really coming out now. We we find that in several aspects. But the the duty of the Liverite marriage was actually not binding. It was not legally binding on Boaz in this case. He wasn't a brother. He's a near relative. Now, that was being applied in Israel at that time. But he's not the, the closest relative either, as we see. There's somebody that's closer. And so he really could not be required in that same way to marry Ruth. And, and I believe part of the reason for the secrecy of this is, is Ruth is, is showing a deference to Boaz to not put him on the spot publicly because there, there is this distinction. But understanding the, the importance of redemption, the issue of redemption was important to Israel and it's instructive to us. To redeem means to buy back. It speaks of a freedom that comes because of a payment to another. In fact, the the Hebrew term that's used here is goel. And it speaks of a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer for that family. And and it's going to figure prominently into this story and and really the entire story of Ruth. And, And understanding that, as I mentioned, because the world belongs to God, this is my father's world, he can give the land to whoever he wishes. And he promised the the land of Israel to Abraham and his descendants. And as I mentioned, it was divided among the 12 tribes. So there were several duties of the kinsman redeemer. One was to ensure that the property would remain within that family, that clan, that tribe. This is what Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 30 speaks of. That if that property got sold, that a redeemer would buy it back. And and so that was part of it. Another aspect would be to protect the freedom of individuals. Uh, Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 55. If somebody, because of poverty, ended up having to sell their property, or they had to sell themselves into slavery, the Redeemer would buy them back from slavery. And, And so that was another responsibility of the kinsman Redeemer. A third one was to receive restitution on behalf of a deceased relative that was a crime victim. If they they died because of a crime, that that redeemer would receive the restitution. Numbers chapter 5, verse 8. They they were to ensure that justice was served in lawsuits involving relatives. And, And another aspect of the kinsman redeemer was to be the avenger of blood. That means to execute a murderer of a near relative. That's Numbers chapter 35 and the the verses that are listed there. Now, now that was not promoting vigilante justice. That was not what, what was laid out. But what the law ensured was that true justice would be done by a a party that had a vested interest in seeing that. So if a relative was murdered, the kinsman redeemer was then to execute the murderer. 
and there were safeguards, there were, there were things in place, there were the cities of refuge that if it was um, involuntary manslaughter, they could go there, judges would hear the case, but if it was truly murder, they would reject them from the city of refuge. And then it was up to the kinsman redeemer to execute justice. So all of this was involved in being the kinsman redeemer. So if somebody sold their property, then the kinsman redeemer could rebuy it. They could redeem it. And that's what we see happening in this passage. That when you read ahead, and we're not going to get there today, but the, when Boaz goes to the city, he says, you know, there's a piece of property that Naomi's husband had to sell because of the famine. And you're the nearer kinsman, you can rebuy it. You can purchase it. You can redeem it. He likes that idea until he realized, but when you do that, you also have to marry Ruth. But what we see is that biblical love is really showing a greater concern for another person. Because what Boaz is saying through this story is, I want the best for her. That's biblical love. So let's jump into this and, and look at it in three aspects, looking at the three characters we see here. The first one is I want us to see that Naomi takes the initiative. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, says to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Isn't it time that I find a place of, of refuge, of, of, of rest for you? The word security really means it's literally rest, which is interesting because chapter 3 begins and ends with a statement concerning rest. You know, when Ruth came back with Naomi from Moab, her chances of remarriage are very slim. I mean, everything here is working against her. She's a widow, she's a foreigner, and she's from a nation that was not friendly with Israel. I mean, every one of those things would give a Jewish man reason not to be interested in her. You know, you're seeing her? I mean, there's going to be a peer pressure. But she had come, she said, you, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And so when Naomi learns that Ruth has met Boaz, we saw that back in chapter 2, that cloud begins to lift, and, and she's seeing, you know, this is a relative of ours. This is a goel. This can be a redeemer. And I think there are several things we can learn and apply. The first one is recognize God's working in your life. We saw that Naomi came back and she was, she was in bitter circumstances. But now she seems to be seeing God's working. God has brought her back to the land of promise, to the house of bread in Bethlehem, and she comes at the time of barley harvest. After barley harvest came the wheat harvest. So there's about two months of harvest time here. But now the harvest is over. But God is still working. And, and this is probably the first real harvest, the first real crop since that, that famine. And so there's a delight for everybody that, that God is blessing. And when chapter 2 ends, if you didn't know the story, you might really wonder, well, are Ruth and Boaz going to see each other again? Well, Naomi has a plan. She's gone from Mara, I mean bitter, to matchmaker. It's like, how can I get them together? She's no longer focused on the bitterness of life, but she's focused on, how can I find a bride for my daughter-in-law? Or a groom for my, my daughter-in-law? How can I make her a bride? Because this guy might be a good possibility. And it looks like she sees God's working now. 
We don't see her focused inwardly because the second thing that you see is that we, we look for opportunities to be used of God to meet the needs of others. A bitter person focuses on themselves. And when Naomi comes back, she, she was focused inwardly. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. That's what her name means. Call me bitter because that's my life. I went out full. I've come back empty. I don't have anything. Well, she's got a daughter-in-law who cares for her that she couldn't drive away even when she tried. You talk about a, a close relationship. But at this point, she's now focused on Ruth. How can I find peace and security for you? And it doesn't look like she's thinking about herself, and she's not really even expressing concern for the family lineage. That's going to be part of it, but her focus is for Ruth. Shouldn't I find a place of security, a place of rest, a a home for you? And I think this is where I, I see a change in her thinking because bitter people are preoccupied with what they've lost, how they've been wronged, what they don't have, that God should have done differently for them. Naomi is now concerned for others. Bitter people are are self-focused, not others-focused. And Naomi's not going to allow the bitter circumstances to become her character. She's not going to grow up to be a bitter old woman. She's seeing God's working. You know, the truth is, who we are now is what we're going to become, but for the grace of God. So we need to allow God to be working in our lives. It's, she's seen God's working, God's goodness. She's concerned for her daughter-in-law, this woman from Moab, who has shown her such compassion and care. And, and I think the spark for this idea started back in chapter 2. That's why we began our reading there. I, I find it humorous that Ruth says, yeah, Boaz told me to stay with his, young, his men. And if you noticed, Ru- Naomi changed it. It's good for you to go out with his young women. And she changes the Hebrew from the masculine to the feminine. Yeah, you hang around with the girls. Leave the guys alone. Now, now the reason she gives was for, for Ruth's protection. That nobody finds you in another field. But, and I'm speculating, I think she may have other ideas in mind. And, and she's looking at this saying, you know... I think there's a possibility. You know, here's this poor young widow from a foreign country who returns with her mother-in-law and and she's committed to caring for her mother-in-law and she goes out to pick up scraps of grain in the field and and she's just trusting God and she meets the older landlord, the landowner, and, and realizes this is a relative of her deceased husband. This is not a Hallmark movie. I mean, that's, but this is the real story of God's working. And, and then notice the practical, just the very practical advice that, that Naomi gives to Ruth in, in chapter 3, verse 3. She says, you know, okay, wash yourself. You know, take a bath. It's a hot climate. There's no air conditioning. You know, take a bath, get cleaned up, anoint yourself, put on some scented oil, some perfume. You, know, you couldn't go down to the health and beauty section of the big box store and pick up deodorant. You know, they didn't have Sure or Secret or Dove or Degree. So it's like, but there's some, there's some perfume. And, you know, maybe this is something she brought from Moab. I mean, these are poor people. You know, but maybe this is something she brought. Maybe this was her husband's favorite perfume. James Vernon McGee, a preacher from last century, said Ruth's favorite perfume was Midnight in Moab. <laughs> now, we don't know if that's what she had. 
But, but Naomi says, you know, anoint yourself, put on some perfume, put on your best garment. You know, it could be that Ruth had continued to wear the garments of her widowhood. And if so, that would explain the lack of initiative on the part of Boaz. That in being an upright man, he's not going to impose himself on, on a grieving widow. So it could be that that was part of what's taking place here. But whatever it is, Naomi is encouraging her to look nice. To dress in a way that is appropriate, that's attractive, but not seductive. And, and really, the garment would be something that would, would hide somebody because Boaz doesn't even know who's there. And then she says, now wait until he's finished eating and drinking. You know, that's just very practical too. You know, if it's going to be a big discussion or a major event, make sure he's got a full stomach. You know, if you're going to tell your, your husband that Junior failed algebra or you wrecked the car or you want to marry somebody, you know, these, this, this is what's taking place. And Naomi says, look, wait till he's, wait till he's had a, a stomach full, wait till things are going well, and then says, now go lay down at his feet and he'll tell you what to do. Now, what we find is not only does Naomi take the initiative, but Ruth is taking the advice. And that's the second thing that we see in this story. She says to her, all that you say to me, I will do. And, and I find that valuable, that, that Ruth is teachable. You know, we need to be teachable and accept wise counsel from people who care for us. Young people, if you're looking for a spouse, if you're in a relationship, you need to take counsel and be teachable. Ruth was willing to, to receive guidance and counsel. And, and parents, we need to prepare our children that they understand we want to be part of that relationship, that they need to seek counsel. The kids who couldn't pick out their own clothes a few years or, earlier, do we really trust them to make a life-changing decision? There ought to be wise counsel. And we need to give it in a way that makes it attractive. Nagging, scolding, shouting are not going to make truth attractive. Proverbs speaks of wisdom that it ought to be like an ornament. It ought to be like a jewel. It ought to be precious. We need to treat God's Word that way and not use it like a club. Well, the Bible says you have to do this. Yeah, that's not going to build a relationship. You will not be persuasive if you are persistently abrasive. And as parents, we need to keep that in mind. But also understand that the Bible instructs the older women to be teachers of good things and admonish younger women. That's what Titus 2, verses 3 through 5 says. Now, I find it interesting. There's no indication of what the other young women in the fields of Boaz told Ruth. And, and she's been hanging around them for two months. Barley harvest was about a month. Wheat harvest was another month. So we're beyond that now. And, and she's listening to her mother-in-law. Ruth had been with them for two months. They were her peers, but she is listening to her mother-in-law. What we see is that Ruth displayed a godly submission. She honored her mother-in-law. You know, the Bible says that wives are to submit to their husbands, but it does not say that girlfriends are to submit to their boyfriends. So, well, how will I know she's submissive? Observe how she responds to the God-given authorities in her life. How does she respond to her father? Well, you don't understand. He, he was a failure, and, and that's, there are horrible situations in our culture. I know that. And there are those exceptions. I realize that. But generally, we, we all have failures. 
And if that's going to just be an excuse, there can still be an attitude of honor, even though there may be a distance. But if she's using that excuse for her family, do you think your flaws aren't going to matter? Just wait till you get married. And by the way, Boaz also shows submission. He's submissive to the cultural expectations, he's submissive to the law, and he's submissive to the civic authorities. And, and I find it fascinating because Ruth is not some little girl at this point. She's a woman who's already been married and a widow, and, and Naomi's not even her mom. You're not my mom. But she still listens because this is somebody who cared for her. And she understands Naomi had a concern for her. And what I find fascinating is in this whole story then, there's a willingness on the part of Ruth to be vulnerable. Does God bless that attitude? Well, we'll probably see in a couple of weeks. But understand what's taking place. But un, I would say live in such a way as to have a godly reputation. That's the second thing we see with Ruth. This is her reputation. In verse 11, Boaz says, My daughter, do not fear. All that you request I will do, for the whole town knows that you are a virtuous woman. That, that she was a woman of virtue, that, that Boaz was a man of virtue, he was a, a man of valor. That's what chapter 2, verse 1 said. The, the word there that it's translated wealthy is, is much more than finance. It speaks of his character, that he was a man of virtue. And there's nothing improper that happens, and, and Ruth, that Boaz actually protects Ruth, both her physical safety and her reputation and how he handles this situation. A good reputation is worth protecting. And that's, that's part of why Boaz tells her, stay the night. It wouldn't be safe to say, okay, go back to Bethlehem now. It's night. It's dark. For a woman alone, that would not be a safe situation in the time of the judges. So he's protecting her safety, but then he tells her to leave before it gets light and people can recognize, so there's no question about propriety. And, and then when she comes back, it, it says she tells her mother-in-law everything that happened. There's an element of accountability there that is valuable. You know, it, it's good for us to be accountable. Young people, it's good to be able to tell everything that happens. And if you can't, what's going on? Well, don't you trust me? I don't trust the flesh. I don't trust your flesh or my flesh. We talked about it at our men's breakfast yesterday. If, if Solomon, Samson, and David, the wisest man, the strongest man, and the man after God's own heart, all fell into sexual sin, what makes us think that we wouldn't? We have to be on guard. Accountability is valuable. We need accountability, and our children need accountability. Parents, don't be naive and think they don't. And again, this, there's nothing inappropriate here. The, the Jewish oral laws called the Mishnah stated that a man could not marry a Gentile woman who was a widow if he had already been sexually active with her. So if there was anything in, inappropriate that took place between Ruth and Boaz, he would not be allowed under the law to marry her. And so that just doesn't happen. And that was to protect women from being taken advantage of. So, so now Ruth goes, she, she watches, she, she looks where Bo, Boaz lays down, and what she's really doing is letting him know that she is available, that she would be interested in, in marrying. And, and that was not appropriate, inappropriate. 
because the widow of a near kinsman was perfectly within her bounds, her rights of propriety to make that kinsman aware of her availability and his opportunity. So, so understand the scene that we have here. It's a bumper crop of grain. They've had the, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and now they're doing the threshing after all of that. And they would do it in the evenings because that would be when the, the breeze would be more consistent, it's a little cooler, and so they could go up on a, a high plateau and thresh and throw the, the grain up in the air and the, the chaff would blow away, and, and it was a more consistent breeze, so it would often take place at night. And then they're going to stay there and guard their their crop that it doesn't get stolen or that animals don't come. And so that's why they're sleeping there. So, so Boaz has had a good meal. He's had great fellowship with fellow workers, with his friends. It's been a long, hard day of work, and he's ready for a good night's sleep. And so he lays down. It's not the most comfortable dis- position. You know, if you're sleeping outdoors, there's no Tempur-Pedic bed, no sleep number, no my pillow. He's sleeping on the ground, but he's, he's tired. And Ruth notes where he lays down. She comes up, she uncovers his feet and lays down at his feet. Why does she uncover his feet? Because he'll wake up when they get cold. And that's what happens about midnight. He wakes up, his feet are cold. He, he realizes about the bottoms of them seem a little warmer and he, he twists over and there's somebody there. And the third thing that we see is Boaz is taken by surprise. There is, he, he is shocked by what's going on here. It happened at midnight. The man was startled. Turns himself, there's a woman lying at his feet, and he says, who are you? What is going on? You know, I I think if you're a parent, you kind of understand this. Most of us as parents have had that opportunity, that wonderful situation where we're fast asleep at night, and all of a sudden we kind of sense somebody there, and we open our eyes, and there's this little face just inches from our face. Daddy, I'm scared. Yeah, that makes two of us right now. <laughs> like, don't do that. <laughs> well, this is what we find with Boaz. It's like, who's here? And he's outdoors during the time of the judges. You know, he's not at home. He doesn't have kids. And he's like, what's going on? And so he asks, who's there? And, and it does seem at this point Ruth goes a little off script. Because Naomi just said, he'll tell you what to do. She, in essence, tells him. (laughs) She says, look, you're a near kinsman. Spread your wings, is how we have it translated, the New King James. You may have a marginal note, as I do, that says, spread the corner of your garment over your maidservant. The, The word has some ambiguity, but both of those meanings are accurate. And if it's interesting because she's she's really she's saying, look, here's what you can do. And and it really is a request to say, I'm available to marry you. Would you marry me? So where do you see that? The the statement that take her under his wings or spread the corner of her garment was was a statement that would use that. Back if you look back at chapter two, verse twelve. Do you remember Boaz's prayer for Ruth? Because of her care for her mother-in-law, he said that, that there would be a full reward given to you by the Lord of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. That same picture is now being used. And in essence, Ruth is saying, you can answer that prayer. It's one thing to pray, now let's put some feet to it. 
would you take me under your protection? Or the idea of spreading a garment would be the idea of the protection in marriage, that, that the groom would take that fringed garment and put it around his bride as a statement that he would protect, that he would guide, that he would lead, that, that he would do that. And Ruth points out, you are a goel. You are a near relative. You can be that guardian redeemer, that kinsman redeemer. And so that's what's taking place. That, that Boaz is, is given this opportunity. And understanding the scene here, that first I want us to see that by trusting the Lord to direct your life in a way of humility and doing what's right, he will do that. You can trust God to direct you. Boaz is faithfully serving the Lord. Ruth is being faithful. She didn't come back to Israel with the idea of, of marrying some wealthy landowner. She came back to help her mother-in-law and to trust the God of Israel. And in doing that, we see that here's Boaz, a man of integrity. As we read in chapter 2, he wasn't just following the letter of the law that said, okay, you can't, you can't harvest the edges of your field. No, he's going to the Spirit and he's saying, look, drop some grain for her. Let her, let her mix in among our, our workers. Let her be part of it. He's, he's taking the Spirit of the law saying, this is a widow and, and she's helping her mother-in-law who's also a widow and he's providing. And we see God working through average, everyday events. There was an economic downturn. There was death in the family. There were life disappointments. There, there were problems, but Ruth is saying, well, I'll do what I can. Let me go out and pick up grain. Let me just be faithful. And all of a sudden, we see all of this coming together. Folks, do the next right thing. You know, we, and I, and I include myself, we like to be able to walk by sight. Well, I don't see how it's going to work out. Yeah, that's what faith means. That I don't see, but I do see that God is in control. And so take the next right step that you know to do. But I don't know how it'll ha work out. No, but God does. And you see that in Ruth. You see that in Boaz. You see it in Naomi. Acknowledging God's working when we see it, when we see how God works, to remember, to give thanks, to praise Him for that, for His faithfulness, because that strengthens our faith and our trust so that we can trust Him when we can't see. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. There will be clouds. For Naomi, it was three deaths and a famine. But God was still at work. And the result is going to be amazing. Take the next right step. This is a vulnerable situation. Ruth really does not know how Boaz will respond. If he were to jump up and start yelling, you shouldn't be here and, and humiliate her, it's not going to go well. I, I'm not sure that Naomi's advice would have been what I would have wanted. Like, okay, do you have plan B or C? Can we have a multiple choice? This one isn't my favorite. But there was a vulnerability and a willingness to trust that God is in control. Proud people are controlling people. They are untrusting. And, and we, we, see, we have to be on guard. It happens in homes. Proud men are controlling men. But Boaz is a man of integrity. And, and, and we see this immediately. He's excited. He wants to marry Ruth. Like, wow. You, you, would, you would marry me. But he's a man of integrity. He says, but there's somebody who's closer. There's a nearer relative than me. 
There's, a, there's somebody else who actually would have first claim as the kinsman redeemer, the guardian. He's amazed that she would consider him, but he would rather have the right thing than his own satisfaction and happiness. You know, he's not trying to say, well, how can I justify this? Yeah, I know that guy's a little closer relative, but neither of us are brothers. And, and if we look at the law, I mean, remember, it's the time of the judges. Everybody does what's to the right in their own eyes. That's not Boaz. He's going to do what's right in God's eyes. He's going to do what's right in the, the culture. And rather than find a way to justify getting what he wants, he immediately states that he will do according to the law. And what we see is that biblical love is showing greater for concern for another person than concern for ourselves. It's putting others before ourselves. You know, we like to think of love as this emotion that gives us a feeling in the pit of our stomach and, and, and just, well, I want that and I, I can't live without them. Biblical love is a commitment to the concern for others. That's why marriage is a covenant. It's a contract. It's a covenant of companionship. And to have a healthy relationship, we, as a couple, we have to be committed to the good of our spouse more than our own happiness. Ruth has actually put the needs of Naomi above her well-being and happiness. That's why she came back. She comes to Bethlehem with limited prospects for marriage. Boaz has announced that he will do the right thing even if it means his relative will marry Ruth. And he wants to do that. He's excited. But what we see is that this is biblical love. I want the best for her. Ladies, if you're dating a guy and he's willing to disobey God because he loves you, he doesn't love God enough. And men, if, you're willing, if you have a girl who's willing to put you before her relationship with the Lord... Her relationship with the Lord isn't strong enough. Because what happens when his or her interest in someone else becomes greater than in you? God has to be the priority. That we're going to do what's right in the sight of God. And that's what gives us strong foundation for marriage. Biblical love is seen in Christ laying down his life for our salvation. It wasn't because he couldn't live without us. It wasn't this feeling he got when he looked at us. We were his enemies. We were dead in sin, defiled, defiant, and deserving of, of punishment. And it says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he sent his son and Christ died for us. You know, that's even a more startling proposal than we read here in Ruth 3 that we are offered to be the bride of Christ. That he would offer salvation to me, to you. And it's on the basis of nothing that we can do except for his great love. That's the God that we have. He is a loving heavenly father. Yes, trials come. Yes, problems come. But God is gracious. God is merciful. And God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son that he would die in our place for our sin that we can have a relationship with him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died and he desires that we would be his bride, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. So it's a selfless love. It's a sanctifying love. It's a purifying love. Is he your redeemer? He's, that's the picture we have. 
that Redeemer. And that's where we see Christ in this story. Is He your Redeemer this morning? And if He is, do you display a Christ-like compassion to others? Do you seek their well-being? Well, I don't feel like it. That's why we don't go on our feelings. We go by principle, saying, Lord, I want to please you. I want the love of Christ to be seen in me to others. And that strengthens our relationships. Even if the other person is not properly responsive, we can still please God. And that we would seek to please Him in our relationships. Because God faithfully provides security for those who will trust in Him. Are we trusting Him this morning? Have you trusted Him as your Redeemer? That you are saved and safe and guarded by Him? If not, we would love to show you from God's Word how you can have that relationship this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we